Welcome to the Nurse and Midwife Support Podcast, Your Health Matters. My name is Ellie Brown, the podcast co-host with Tessa Moriarty. I am one of the stakeholder engagement team for Nurse and Midwife Support and a registered nurse. Tessa will be familiar to our audience, having co-hosted podcasts and written blogs for our service. She is an experienced mental health nurse. Nurse and Midwife Support is the national support service for nurses, midwives and students. It is anonymous, confidential and free. You can call anytime you need support on 1800 667 877 or contact us via the website nmsupport.org.au. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which each of us are listening and I pay my respects to First Nations Elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples contributing and listening to the podcast today. Sovereignty was never ceded. Today, Tessa and I will be speaking with Dr Ali Drummond, Acting CEO of Katsunam, the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives. It's a nursing midwifery organisation that has supported and advocated for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses, midwives and students for over 25 years. Ali, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your career in nursing, please? Thank you for having me. So a little bit about myself. I am Maryam and Daure Man from the Torres Straits on my mother's side and my father's side, Woodsy Man from Cape York. I grew up on my Benny or Thursday Island or TI with my seven siblings, many cousins and broader extended family. Went away for boarding school, but went back when I finished boarding school and did my nursing degree through James Cook University. They had a little campus on Thursday Island. It's not there anymore, but I was one of the three inaugural graduates from the JCU's Thursday Island campus. During the time I was studying my Bachelor of Nursing degree, I worked as a Torres Strait Islander health worker in the primary healthcare service up there for Queensland Health, as well as an assistant in nursing at the Thursday Island nursing home known as Star of the Sea. So just as I'm sort of talking about my entry into health and into nursing, I really want to bring that to the fore because that really grounded my practice in primary healthcare, but also in caring for my mom. Clinically as a nurse, I've worked in many different areas. I eventually made it into agency nursing. So I've worked in many different areas, particularly in Brisbane, but I did my grad year in orthopedics and really enjoyed that and stayed there for I think about three years at the Princess Alexandra Hospital. It was a great place, I think, to, to learn broad range of skills and expand on uh, knowledge, particularly around surgical nursing. So my clinical experience expense is mostly, I think, in, in orthopedics and primary health care. I've also worked in policy areas. I've worked for two of Queensland's chief nursing and midwifery officers in a role that focused on Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nursing and midwifery. So I was the Indigenous Nurse Advisor and Assistant Director of Nursing. And so I oversaw a number of statewide policy and program work that looked at increasing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives, uh, they looked at improving practice, so improving the cultural safety of nursing midwifery practice in Queensland, and also supported a number of Aboriginal nurses and midwives to advance into um, advanced roles within Queensland Health. I soon left there after a few years and, and started work at Queensland University of Technology as an academic. In that role, I taught in the undergraduate and postgraduate nursing program across the board, but had a focus, obviously, on 
cultural safety and Aboriginal traditional health. And had a keen interest in ensuring scaffolded learning from first year all the way to postgrad. So developing up courses and, and teaching courses for the masters of nurse, nurse practitioners. So that's where I sort of expanded, I guess, my interest in looking at how we can, you know, continue to sophisticate what we teach nurses and midwives, well, nurses in particular, because QT and you offered nursing, but to offer sophisticated nursing education. So it continued to build upon the foundational stuff that was taught in first year nursing to, you know, more advanced level teaching about how nurse practitioners can learn about the policy frameworks that exist around closing the gap, learn about what opportunities exist for taking advantage of things like funding that comes through Medicare, as well as how do they develop and design models of care, leveraging off resources and incentives like our Medicare that exist. So I think it was important for me at that time to really support nurses coming through that education, to understand it's not just the one-off training that you do or the one-off unit that you do in your undergraduate program, that your knowledge, skills and experience can further develop and be enhanced to better support Aboriginal and Torres people to that master's level where nursing leaders, clinical leaders can actually design programs with Aboriginal and Torres communities with what leverages were available. Can I ask you a question there? What sort of response did you get from those you were training? Like you said, it's so critical. Mm. A bit of a mix. I think largely a lot of the students appreciated the learning. I think it can be quite challenging learning, particularly when talk, I think, to undergraduate education first. I think when the majority of the program is sort of targeted at clinical practice, which isn't a bad thing, but I think students get a sense for that anything else that isn't so focused on clinical practice, when you're looking at, you know, the theory of cultural safety, when you're looking at the therapeutic relationships, the power dynamics between care recipient, care provider, that can seem less sexy and attractive and less nursing because everything else is so proximal, I guess, to clinical practice, where learning about cultural safety learning about the history, the historical context of Aboriginal health, the social context and the cultural context, particularly when it comes to challenging concepts like racism. I've found in my, student, in my experience that students can feel very uncomfortable by that and very easily and quickly can be seen as non-nursing knowledge and skills. Yeah. So, but I've also you know, had experiences of students really excelling in undergraduate education where we're giving them cultural safety as a tool of understanding the world in a much more critical way, understanding our practice in a much more critical way. And I think if learning is scaffolded well, students can see the tools and then apply it. It can be confronting, I think, understanding racism and then seeing it for the first time because we see it in our social circles, in our families, in our friends. So there is there's grief that comes with that, so, you know, that the different stages of denial and anger. So there's a bit of that in teaching about Aboriginal and health and cultural safety as well. And so as an educator, contemporary educator in that space, you have to understand that journey and it's create a learning experience that can support students along the way. Not all students will, will take the journey, but many do. And once you get a collection of students on board, they support each other through that journey. And that's what you see in the tutorial activities. If you get it right, you, know, you can really support, I think, that collective 
knowledge and development and trust in each other to walk that path. Right. That's so right. One thing I'm learning in doing the Mara Malangari course is that the nursing practice is critical, but nurses also have to step outside practice to be leaders and to be change makers and to really, as you said, understand the system, the biggest system, the history, racism itself. And there's a disarming process, I think, in that. But that's what also requires change. And so it's great to hear you talk about that. Absolutely. I, I think there's an assumption that nursing and we free are, are apolitical. That nothing is apolitical. I think we all live in a social and cultural space. You know, there's politics everywhere. And I think if you're not actively engaging in sort of just being aware of it and understanding whether you are condoning a certain ideology or a certain approach or a certain direction, yeah, just claiming a political space is a bit of a cop-out. Yeah, I think acknowledge that and understand that when our, our disciplines aren't apolitical. We've never been. We've always pushed for what's best for our patients, for the community. But what's best for our patients and community can be quite complicated. So we have to go the next step then and understand the complexity. And I think cultural safety really helps under, um, helps us understand that. Ali, can you tell us about being the acting CEO of the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, please? Yes, well, being the acting CEO of any organisation is, is tough work. Lots of responsibility on your shoulder. Fulfill the aspirations of the board. So I have a board or directors that I report to that supervise me, that are my employer. But we also have, we're a membership organization. So our members, largely Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses, midwives, and students, they vote the board. So, so there's some structures above me that keep me accountable for my role. And my role is fulfilling the strategic plan, the strategic agenda set by the board. So that's a huge responsibility. And as you said before, Katsunem is a membership organization. We have over almost 2,000 Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nursing midwifery and student members and another 700 non-Indigenous members as well. So there's all sorts of aspirations and needs from our membership as well. And sort of it's balancing all those requirements of you with what resources you have. So my role is sort of do that. So when it comes to priority areas for Katsunem, my focus from the board is around the first ones around leadership and advocacy. That's ensuring that Katsunam has a seat at the table for all those big national and sometimes jurisdictional, so state and territory strategic discussions when it comes to nursing midwifery and Indigenous health. And so Katsunam's invited to a lot of those tables to have a say. And it's not just, I guess, turning up, it's ensuring that we're across the intersections of what the gatherings about and how it impacts on Katsunam, its members and its interests. Advocacy, we do a lot of work from the organisation lobbying. So we do provide a lot of feedback on big national consultations and inquiries. We provide that lens, that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Nursing Water Free lens. And we do try to stick in our lane because there is so much work out there that we could do, but we want to make sure that we are delivering for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives. And largely the nursing midwifery workforce, particularly around Aboriginal Torres Strait Health. Since we've been established in you know, 25, 26 years ago now, we've always had an interest in workforce development and growth, our second priority area. So we've always been interested and keen to lobby and support increases in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's participation in nursing midwifery programs and, of course, in the disciplines themselves. 
26 years on from the birth of our organization, we're now very keen to advocate and promote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership within health services. And that isn't just replacing non-Indigenous people with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in leadership roles. It's also promoting and advocating for the value of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge as ways of doing. So some, some of your listeners might be familiar or might have worked in Aboriginal community control health services. And I know some of these health services really engage in different ways of approaching health and well-being. And so their role has required them to think about what nursing looks like or midwifery looks like in these models. I think a lot of people are getting behind models around birthing on country or birthing in community. So these are harnessing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of knowing knowledges, different ways of engaging with communities, with families, that is making them change the way that they practice to fit what the needs are, different approaches. And so our role at Katsunam is to support that. It isn't just about building capacity anymore. It's about ensuring that we're getting the health service, health systems, even the university systems, valuing Indigenous knowledge as ways of knowing. Lastly, I will just add that the last priority uh, area, the last strategic pillar is partnership and engagement. And that's evident in, I guess, all the things I've mentioned before. Katsunam can't do this work alone. As I mentioned before, we have a, quite a number of allies that have joined organization and we're ensuring that we are providing support to them as well. Their learning of cultural safety or their learning of, of racism and their role in it, but also I guess supporting specific areas too. We have a program called the Leaders in Nursing Midwifery Education Network, and that's large. That's a network of nurse and midwife educators and academics who teach Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health and cultural safety. And so a large amount of that program membership is non-Indigenous nurses and midwives. We know that we can't do all that teaching, so it's supporting them develop their practice, their knowledge, their confidence in teaching cultural safety. So ensuring that we are developing that community of practice. So when we're thinking about sort of my role in all of that, it's ensuring that the ship's moving forward. You know, we have all these different programs of work within the organisation, ensuring that we're not taking on too much. So we are staying afloat, but we're, we're focused on those key areas that are important for the organisation, supporting Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives, but also supporting our allies because we know that's a very important part of our success as well. Yeah, so the acting role has been interesting in the sense that it's also acting, that we're in transition between CEOs, and so it's ensuring that we maintain momentum. My predecessor, Professor Roy-Ann West, established, I think, a lot of key or seminal pieces of work for Katsunam, and namely the Getting Him, Keeping Him and Growing Him report. And so ensuring that that continues to mobilise into implementation has also been key on my agenda. Yeah, so it's been a busy time. I've been in the role for a few months now, but it's been a rewarding experience. It's beautiful to hear. Like you said, there's a lot of work you do. There's a lot of work to do, reiterating how important that you say those partnerships are because you can't, Katsunam can't do all of the work. Within your membership, do you have, you know, working groups, working parties as well? That's something that we are want to expand upon. I mentioned Linman before. It is it grew quite big several years ago, but since COVID, it's been a bit dormant. It's really difficult to get people together and have face-to-face workshops. So we're bringing back or, or trying to 
reignite that fire again for Lindman. We have a collection of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander academics who form a collective called Mulian. And Mulian's focus is research. At the moment, it's research around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health education and cultural safety education. It was a group that was funded by Alawacha Institute grants. Alawacha Institute is an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander controlled research institute. So they funded the establishment of this group. That funding since ceased, and we're actually looking at expanding that program, Zumulian, to look at all the different priority areas for CATS and M. So, as I mentioned before, workforce advocacy. So we have that research element behind us. We are looking at expanding, I guess, in a way that we have, I guess, temporary working groups for different priority areas. We know that projects and programs that we're engaged in, you know, tenders, for example, or advisory groups, steering groups that's set up by the federal government, they have a short time frame, but they're an opportunity for us to engage our members. So since starting the role in November, we've been engaged by the department to bring together our nurse practitioner members to advise on a nurse practitioner plan, bring together a number of our members from the university sector, provide advice in a, an official submission for the university accord, which is the government, I guess, planning the next couple of decades of the university sector. So we're trying to be a lot more agile around how we function and also create opportunities for our members to actually share with us their knowledge and experience and making, and us, I guess, making that connection between them and these big national projects and opportunities for us to make influence. So it's a lot of work coordinating members, but it's an important part of our work because, you know, the knowledge doesn't sit with one person who's in the acting CEO role. It's actually within the collective. And so a big part of my role, sorry, going back to that previous question, is facilitating that. Yes, absolutely. And cats have always been in capital in Canberra, kind of makes sense. Is that a strategic thing as well, so that you're close to government? Mm. Yeah, Katzenham started on Bribery Island. So Dr. Sally Gould, as she's the one that instigated the Katzen, so Congress Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nurses initially. So she developed, well, she did her master's on the participation rates of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nurses. And from that master, she brought together a whole heap of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives to talk about the need for a national organisation. So when it first started, it was based on Bribey Island. That's where she lived. It was just her in when I first started in 2002, I think. She may have had two staff members, but that's it. So it's been, it started as a small operation on Bribey Island. And it wasn't until I think 2009 or 2010 that it moved to Canberra. And that's when Janine Mohammed, now the CEO of Lowitcher Institute, she became CEO of Katzen, that then became Katzenam. And yeah, it's sort of been in Canberra ever since. It has now the bigger office in Brisbane, and we still have a small office here in Canberra. And it is strategically placed so we can be close to government, be close to the department, key stakeholders. We are mostly government funded and work alongside the other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health peaks. So AIDA, the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, the IHA for the Allied Health um, Associations, and NATSIWIP, so the National Association of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Health Workers and Health Practitioners. So they're all based here as well. And so there is strategy around us also working together, ensuring that we're on the same page when we are negotiating the bigger things with government. And I think government appreciates that too, that we are in aligned with our approach, particularly around cultural safety, 
around addressing racism, around increasing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health professionals within health services. Yes. Our next question is, Ali, what does the future hold for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mm. nurses and midwives and students? Mm. I'm going to go back a little bit and just mention one more thing around the functions, the important functions, because I've talked a lot about how we provide advice and guidance. But I think for me, the most important part of Katsunam is that Katsunam is the collective. It's not just a building. It's the collective of Aboriginal nurses, midwives and students. And so our most important functions is maintaining that community. Our conferences have always been the highlight for me as a member. And, you know, there's been times when I've not been as close to Katsunam because work's been busy, but knowing that there's always that annual conference to come back to where we re-engage with, you know, mob from the other side of the continent I haven't seen for a long time. Even mob from the same city, we haven't seen each other because it's just been so busy. It's that coming together, sharing experiences, lessons, more strategizing on how we've dealt with racism the last year, how we've pushed for more things within our workplace. So celebrating the blue sky moments as individuals, but also as collectives. And I think that's, that's so important for us as practicing nurses and midwives. But it's also important learnings for students coming through because they're learning about also about how to be resilient in the space because of you know the racism that they, they encounter. So when it comes to what the future holds for us, I think we are keen to build upon that community and make it more active, provide more opportunities for people to get together. We're currently in a political landscape where we have a very supportive federal government. We have quite a number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ministers including an assistant minister, Indigenous Health, um, who has been very supportive of Katsunam, particularly the Getting and Keeping and Growing and Report. So they're across our work, a very supportive Commonwealth Chief Nursing Midwifery Officer as well, and I meet with Alison regularly and talk to her about, she's really keen and interested to learn about sort of the, the work that Katsunam's doing and a lot of the synergies that's happening nationally and how we can leverage off the big national pieces of work. And the nurse practitioner plan is one of those. We're able to strategize around, okay, how do we get First Nations nurse practitioner voices, but also elevate First Nations help within there. So, yeah, I think it's been important learning for me in the last few months, but hitting the ground running around getting those opportunities. I think the time is ripe now more than ever for advancing, especially the more challenging conversations around the need for addressing racism, and the need for us to be more culturally safe in our practice. And so we've been a lot bolder in our discussions, particularly with key stakeholders like uh, the Nursing Midwifery Board of Australia, like the Australian Nursing Midwifery Accreditation Council, and uh, very many nursing midwifery organisations that exist. And to our surprise, and in a very, I guess, respectful way, people, the organisations and leaders have been very receptive to learning, to sitting and yarning about what the problem is and what can be done about it. And where does Katsunam fit in the space, knowing that Katsunam can't do all, all things, can't be everything to everyone. But we can certainly advise and guide and provide that critical friend uh, to provide that honest advice and guidance. So I think what, what lies ahead is for Katsunam is, is investing in those relationships. So we're going down the pathway of establishing partnership agreements with our key stakeholders. And the intentions of the partnership agreements is for Katsunam to set forth its expectation of what it means to be partners with us. We want mature partnerships. We don't want to be the advisory group on projects that we've been brought in last minute. We actually want to co-develop things. We want to co-implement 
And we also want to evaluate in partnership and have those, those very robust and honest conversations about what didn't go well and what could be done better. And we know that this environment like this doesn't last forever, but we want to make hay weather while the sun shines. So we want to establish those relationships and do some really good work with our key partners. And I've already mentioned a few of them. Yeah, so we're very excited. And, and the big an important part of that is then Katsunam getting ready for those relationships. So we're only a small organization. There's only 12 of us. So we're also trying to build our capacity internally to ensure that we're not over committing and what we commit to, we can certainly achieve for our members. Yes, I've had some experience with primary health networks and the federal government programs that are funded specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And I really think that there's a lot of work in those partnerships that can still be done on the development of programs that are much more suited to your people rather than programs that are being adapted <laughs> that you actually have a stake in the development of from the get-go mm. rather than adapt them because I've seen the opposite of that. Absolutely. And I guess that's why the Closing the Gap National Reform Agreement, take two, the, the current one, the new one, has that as part of its key reform areas, is about co-development, co-design, that accountability, transparency back to Aboriginal Traditional people, the people we should be, that we should be serving. There's, you know, in, in the context of Aboriginal Traditional Health, is Aboriginal Traditional people. So it makes sense for the people that should be served to provide that feedback, to provide that leadership, because we have to be held account to those people. That aligns with cultural safety. This is why cultural safety is about care recipient determining what's safe for them in any given moment. And this is why that partnership is so important, that relationship is so important. So they feel safe telling us, no, I want it this way. Or, And of course, you know, we can't always provide care that is requested. I'm just thinking about my time in, you know, clinical nursing. There was, you know, a request around smoking of the room. It was very difficult to smoke a room within the hospital because of the fire alarm system that was set up. It was very difficult just to isolate one particular room or one particular section. So that was impossible to do. So there's some limitations, obviously, to that. But in saying that, there are opportunities when we are developing and designing new hospital health services that we keep those things in mind, that maybe we need to factor that uh, some people would like their room smoked after a passing of a loved one. So it's not entirely impossible. But this is, again, why the relationship is so important. So we renegotiate what's possible within the parameters that we have to ensure care is as safe as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've got one question. How can nurses and midwives better support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses, midwives and students? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that, and I guess I've raised it a few times, but it, it is comes back to commitment to continuously learning, developing an understanding of cultural safety, the theory itself, but it's also its application to nursing with a free practice. This learning can be uncomfortable. Research that I've read so far, it talks about the need for it to be uncomfortable because it's supposed to interrupt what we see as normal. And so persevere through that discomfort. If you're not uncomfortable, perhaps you're not going deep enough. So revisit the theory, revisit the learning, get a little bit uncomfortable. And that's fine. So as individuals, we can feel guilty or angry about being complicit, whether directly or indirectly, of poor treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and of other people as well. I should put that up front. Cultural safety is a really important tool for all our patients. 
all the people that we care for. And we, I guess, focus on cultural safety for Aboriginal and Torres Strait people because the experience of racism by Aboriginal and Torres Strait people is very significant. We've seen this in so many reports. I mean, we don't talk enough about how the gap that exists between Aboriginal and Torres Strait people's life expectancy and the burden of diseases, we don't talk about how much racism impacts on that. We talk about how people discharge with prior to their care being complete or discharge against medical advice. But we never talk about how unsafe health service is, the reason why people leave. Aboriginal and Torres people are six times more likely to leave before their care is complete. That's telling us the health service out there that's supposed to help them is unsafe and they would rather go home, continue being sick, risk getting worse, risk death, than to stay in that health service. So we don't spend enough time looking at how unsafe our health service is, I think. And so that's why I think the focus is for cultural safety for Aboriginal and Torres Strait people has been so focused on racism. Yes, yes. And that's shocking, actually. That is shocking that that happens. And it's so important that you say that, that we remember that, that we hear that. And learning about that, I think, learning about the cultural safety and the operations of racism, so how they operate, so how a joke about Aboriginal and Torres Strait people is sort of laughed at or laughed along with by people. Or people are sort of encouraged or no one says anything. They know it's bad and don't say anything. That's just one small example of racism. It can take many forms. Learning about cultural safety and learning about how racism can manifest is really important because racism can manifest just in disempowering people through jokes, not giving them the shifts that they want and a trend starts to happen that Indigenous nurses or particularly Indigenous nurses are given that particular shift. Them being allocated, Aboriginal and Torres people, nurses, midwives being allocated certain patients. I think just recently, last year, we had an Aboriginal and Torres Strait midwife in New South Wales being allocated Aboriginal Torres Strait women, which wasn't a bad thing when we think about sort of cultural safety might be safer, but how it was written on the roster, you know, there was a derogatory term that was used to identify this particular midwife. The nurse unit manager was informed but didn't do anything. And I'm just talking from what I read in the media. And so there was no action from seniority within the ward. And so that behavior was condoned and was supported and seen as fine. And the Aboriginal Torres Strait midwife was seen as the one that had the problem that they were being too sensitive. And this was just last year. And this is something that has happened over years. I've experienced it myself. So it has many different forms. So understanding when Aboriginal Torres Strait people in this context are being disempowered, are being treated like crap for no other reason but for them being Indigenous. That is very challenging. So I think nurses and midwives can better support Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nurses, midwives and students by doing training like Mara Malangari to understand cultural safety, understand those different manifestations of racism. Learn in other programs, you learn language to address these things. And it's far safer for a non-Indigenous nurse or midwife or student to actually step up and say, actually, that's inappropriate. And this is why. And don't expect the Aboriginal Torres Strait person who's being targeted with this racism to do it themselves. So that's an important role I think nurses and midwives can play, is stepping up. And I think we see that other campaigns, other racism campaigns, I think gender equality, we see that also in equality for LGBTIQ plus people as well. So it's really extending that advocacy, that activism, that ally role 
to prevent them experiencing discrimination within the workplace. And I must say, I think that addressing racism is going to be harder than I think those other forms of discrimination, because there's something very foundational, I think, to racism here, where we are on Aboriginal land. I think all of us at the moment, I was on Torres Strait Islander land last weekend when I was visiting home. Now, these are all unceded sovereign lands. And so the existence of the nation state, the existence of Australia is based on us being on sovereign Aboriginal Australian land. So there is a tension there that never really gets talked about. And I think we're seeing it being talked about now that we've had the Uluru Statement presented, and it talks very clearly about how the Crown's claim to the lands and waters of Australia cannot supersede Aboriginal Australian people because their sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, so the Uluru Statement speaks to that pivotal, I guess that cornerstone we haven't really dealt with yet for our nation state. And so when we acknowledge that, we can also see that these manifestations of racism are based on that tension is based on this sort of notion that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people aren't human enough to be the sovereign people. And this is why Terranalius was seen as viable because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't seen as human, lands belonging to no human, to no one. So there's still that logic that exists, even though no one talks about, you know, if you sort of unwind back, you know, these manifestations of racism back, it comes back to this tension around who's the sovereign owners of these lands and countries. And so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are a constant reminder of that. We disrupt a room when we walk in because we're a constant reminder of that. And so that's why we then are targeted with racist vile attacks sometimes. It's telling us we don't belong in those spaces. We're not worthy enough to be in those spaces. And so in thinking about what nurses, midwives can do in that space, it's, it's being more aware. So learning about cultural safety, again, manifestation of racism. But then in addition to that, understanding this big push now, this request from Aboriginal and Torres Strait people in the Uluru Statement and around you know having a, that voice to parliament, having the difficult conversations, the truth-telling about our, our joint history together isn't just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, our joint history, what's happened since colonisation and the conversations around agreement-making. Because, because of those tensions I've talked about that go back to, that tend to sort of push us back to, you know, those racialized logics that then sort of manifest as racism against Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. So being aware of those conversations in a deep level as well, and not just see them as rhetoric. And also acknowledge, I think, as you sort of learn, take these learnings on board, acknowledge that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people have always been the proverbial football, political football. So all and any government has used Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples in different ways to get ahead, to get votes. And of course, we see this now. We have both sides taking different sides of the literary statements. And unfortunately, it can get quite violent for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. And all of a sudden, we just get sort of pushed in front of sort of cameras to, and microphones and to speak on which side do you take. And all of a sudden, you have to like condense this very complex matter into very into a 15-second grab. It's, it's very violent because it's very complex. And so learning about cultural safety helps you understand how those power dynamics work, how Aboriginal and Torres Strait people are sort of kept disempowered, even in a political context that's supposed to be supportive of us. It's become quite unsafe. Yes, it's both kind of humbling and inspiring to listen to you and to be in that space of kind of not knowing, not having understood but wanting to and wanting to say something in itself can be quite anxiety-provoking because I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I want to say something. But I'd rather be there than not be there. I'd rather be here. You know mm. what I mean? Absolutely. 
I guess that's why it's important for us to have space for our non-Indigenous allies and create space for them to have those conversations. I think community of practices are important for that. I think if listeners out there also are thinking about the same thing, it's finding like-minded people. When I say like-minded, it's sort of people who are interested in having communities where they can have robust conversations that are informed by evidence that are also compassionate and not just living, you know, finding people that will just stay in the silo with you. You know, these things take, require, I think, these complex matters require different perspectives so that I think you're better prepared then to disarm others who are out there to just cause harm or to spread ill-informed information or rhetoric, as we're seeing at the moment in the current uh, political landscape. Yeah, it can be very challenging, I think, when, yeah, when you want to say the right thing and you don't want to condone, I think, the wrong thing. I know that some spaces are created for all people where sort of people can come and get together, but it's mostly for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people to talk and others to listen. I think there's spaces that can work well too, where it is about listening and learning from the interactions and from what's being said. The theorizing that happens, you know, Professor Chelsea Watergo talks about how Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people have been disempowered for so long, put, um, you know, at the bottom of the rung for so long and reminded that that's where they belong. But it's from those places where Aboriginal Torres Strait people have learned about the worst of racism and so understand how it operates within the systems. And so she calls them advantage points where we learn about how racism operates and then strategize against those things. So I think in those spaces, you can learn a lot from Aboriginal Torres Strait people. This is why our voices are so important. It's why we should have a voice at the table because we know how the system hasn't been designed for us. We know the pattern of those systems and processes so we can anticipate those but so we can also advise on different ways of disarming those systems and processes that's why our voices are important and yeah so that's why i think those spaces are really nice when non-indigenous people can sort of sit and listen but i think there's also room for critical spaces for non-indigenous people to have those robust conversations amongst themselves because these are systems and processes designed largely by non-indigenous people for non-indigenous people expecting everyone else to just, you know, fit the mould. So I think there are important, robust conversations to be had there. And it's not about saving Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. Because what we find, particularly when we look at the examples of Aboriginal community control health organisations, is that when Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people design different things for that meets the needs of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, it actually meets the needs of other, the broader population as well. Having worked in a community control health service in Brisbane, I've seen non-Indigenous people come in because their GP system is the GP service that, they were, that they've been going to just was limited in its way to actually engage with allied health, engage with broader social determinants of health as well. So asking questions beyond that. So I actually found value in that. And so I think systems that are better suited, designed for, by and for Aboriginal people can actually better serve the broader community. So there's lots that we can learn from Aboriginal Torres people as well. Beautiful. That's, you know, wonderful, wonderful answer, wonderful conversation. There's so many learnings in what you're saying. Thank you, Ali. That was a wonderful yarn. Thanks. Thank you both. Really enjoyed that. That's all for today's podcast. Please remember support is available whenever you need it. Nurse Midwife support, you can call on 1800 667 877. This service is anonymous, confidential and free and you can call 24-7 or contact us via the website nmsupport.org.au. Your health matters.
Thank you.